Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Now, with God's Word before us, God's people around us, and God's Spirit in our midst, I encourage you to open with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. And I want to read verses 13 to 20 as we think together on this wonderful promise from our Lord Jesus in which he says, I will build my church. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I the son of man am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, Caesarea Philippi was approximately 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was an ancient Greek city that had been revitalized by Philip the Tetrarch, thus the name Philippi. And he was the son of Herod the Great. And to honor his pagan father, Philip built a shrine to Caesar for the observance of emperor worship. So you have the twin names, Caesar, Caesarea, and Philip, Philippi. It's in this location now that Jesus asked his disciples this question, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? This is a defining watershed moment in the personal ministry of our Lord Jesus. This episode marks, in a sense, a turning point in his focus and his emphasis. In fact, look at the 21st verse. I didn't read all the way down to verse 21, but listen to that. From this time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So from this time forth, Jesus' emphasis shifts from teaching them about what it means to be one of his followers to a focus on his upcoming sufferings, crucifixion, and resurrection. So it's a defining watershed moment here at Caesarea Philippi. Another reason this is such an important passage is because it is the only reference to the church in the four Gospels except for in the 18th chapter of Matthew. We're in Matthew 16 this morning. There's another reference in Matthew 18, 17, but besides these two, the word church never appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. 
Now, many professing Christians in the dispensational school of thought, you know, the rapture left behind mindset, see the church as a kind of afterthought or addendum to God's program for national Israel. That it was never really intended to be, but it was instituted as a stopgap measure until Christ can come back and set up his kingdom. So they capitalize on the fact that the Gospels say very little about the church to say that the church was never really intended to be established because there's so little said about it. Instead, the focus is on the kingdom of God. But I want you to notice that he mentions the church in verse 18 and in the very next verse, verse 19, he mentions the kingdom of heaven. And I suggest your consideration that the church and the kingdom are one and the same, that the church is the visible expression of the kingdom of God in this world. Else Jesus would not have mentioned both the church and the kingdom in this passage in succeeding verses. The passage, I suggest, demonstrates the importance that Jesus placed on the church. Even though many of our dispensational friends say that the church is an afterthought, yet, my beloved Jesus says, I'm invested in it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I wondered this morning if you and I place the same emphasis and priority on the church that Jesus does He is interested and invested in his church. I wonder if I can say the same. Now, you might ask today, Brother Mike, why is the church so important? And the first answer to that question is this little pronoun, my. I will build my church. The reason the church is important is because it's his church. The church is the personal property of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church belongs to him. It's his church. You may know that the Greek word translated church in this passage, again in Matthew 18, and then in the epistles in the New Testament, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and so forth, is the Greek word ekklesia, and it means to call out. The word ekklesia literally means a people called to assemble and gather themselves together. Now, you know, since sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, mankind has been dispersed, divided, separated. There's been alienation within the human family. We see it all around us. Somebody says our nation is so divided. Well, the world is divided and it always has been. And the Lord has been interested from the very beginning in gathering a people together as his own people. He's been invested in calling out a people for his own name. We see a figure and a type of that in Old Testament Israel, a nation marked out from all of the other nations that God claimed as his own, and they were to be devoted to God's glory. And the New Testament church is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament typified. The New Testament church, my friends, is a people whom God has called out as his own. Now, one day, The whole family of God in heaven will be gathered together. That's the great gathering, isn't it? My friends, the church on earth is a dress rehearsal for the gathering that will take place when the whole family of God is unified together in heaven someday. And every time we gather before the Lord as the church of Jesus Christ, it's a microcosm 
of what we will experience to a greater degree when we get to heaven. Now that's why the church is important, because it's his church. And I'll tell you another reason it's important. Not only does he call it my church, but he says, I will build it. And here we find our Lord's promise to perpetuate the church. I want you to notice this is an ongoing construction project in which Jesus Christ is the great builder of the church. And he affirms his personal, his perpetual, and his active involvement in the building of it. And many of you know that my family and I have been engaged in a building project recently. And I have to tell you, we have the best builder in the states of North or South Carolina. We have a contractor that uh, is very attentive and very efficient at what he does. But I'll tell you, there's never been a builder on this earth who's as good a builder as the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the great builder. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And don't you see the ongoing nature of this promise, I will build my church? Now, he's already established the church when he was baptized by John the Baptist in Jordan's River. Baptism is the door of entrance into the New Testament church. And Jesus has set the pace. He has been the trailblazer and shown us by example what it means to follow him when he himself came and was baptized by John the Baptist. So he's already established the church, but now he says, I'm going to continue to build it. And what we have over the past 2,000 years of church history is the fulfillment of this promise. Here we have our Lord's pledge to remain involved in this ongoing construction project in the world. Now, think about it. Did you know Jesus Christ is involved in a building project on this earth? You say, well, I think he's probably building the inner cities of America, or he's building some great organization. I'll tell you, he is building a great organization, but it's not a secular or worldly organization. He is building his church even to this very day. I will build my church. And what this promise tells me this morning is there's reason to be encouraged. I believe that this passage offers rich encouragement to every pastor and believer that cares about the future of the church because it speaks of Christ's personal interest in and investment in the church. The church is his special project in the world. It's the one entity in the world that has the creator of the universe as its personal manager or its CEO. Therefore, our concern is not so much with the growth of the church. You know, I want to see the church grow, but our concern should not be so much with the growth of the church because we don't give the increase, but rather with the faithfulness of the church. Are we functioning as the Lord made us to function? Do we truly grasp, I wonder this morning, my beloved, what a great honor it is to participate in a project that has the Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, the king of all kings, as its head and its leader, and that will never cease to exist. You are part of something in this world, my beloved, that will never cease to exist. If you think about the mighty corporations that there have been in America in the past, most of them that were once very popular and very influential have reached their zenith and they're on the downhill grade if they haven't completely ceased to exist. You know, I think of companies like Kmart that was once very popular, no offense intended 
to the people who headed that organization, but you know, you very seldom see a Kmart anymore. IBM was once the leader in the technological industry, and they're still around, and you still hear about them from time to time, but they're not number one on the list like they once were. Xerox Corporation once held a monopoly almost on photocopiers, but you know, it's been a long time since I've seen a Xerox brand of copier. Braniff Airlines was once very popular in America, but you know, I think they went out of business and haven't seen a Braniff plane in a long time. It doesn't matter how many multi-billion dollars of assets that a company may have. It doesn't matter what their physical strength might be. I want to tell you that every earthly organization will rise to the peak and then it will decline until it ceases to exist and another will replace it. That's the way of the world. But the church of Jesus Christ will never cease to exist. Jesus said, I will build it. And the reason it will never cease to exist is because it has a supernatural element involved in its perpetuity. You see, if this was just an organization that relied on you or me for its sustenance and its continuance, I dare say we would have reason to be worried because the church in America and in the world, in most cases today, is in a very fragile state and condition. I'm sure you see that just like I do, that the church is struggling. But I'm glad to tell you, dear friends, that Jesus Christ remains not only interested in, but involved in his true church. And he says, I will build it. What a wonderful, precious promise that is. And I believe him. I trust him today to take care of his people because it's his church. Now, I know sometimes we say, I love my church. In fact, I've had a few people tell me recently, Brother Mike, I love my church. But you know, in the technical sense of the term, even though we understand that language, it's not my church. I appreciate the fact that you love it and you're invested in it and you claim it as your own. But I'll tell you, ultimately, we need to understand it's the Lord's church, right? And he says, I'm going to take care of it. I will build my church. Now, that doesn't mean that we can be lazy. It doesn't mean that it'll always be here in coastal Carolina. Yes, my friends, we're involved in something that is bigger than us. We're involved in a project that has, the again, the creator of the universe as its head and CEO. Our headquarters is not in Raleigh. Our headquarters is not in Nashville or Atlanta or Chicago or New York or Los Angeles. Our headquarters is in heaven. And Jesus, during his personal ministry, said to his disciples, I will build my church. I hope you feel that it's truly an honor to participate in such a noble and supernatural project as the Lord's construction project in this world. He is at work building his church. Now I want to extract from our text this morning four important observations on this precious promise. And the first thing I think we can learn from this passage is that Christ builds his church with people whose hearts have been transformed by divine grace. You see that in verse 17. Notice the conversation again. Jesus asked, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the answers were all over the map. Some say Elijah, some Jeremiah, some John the Baptist, 
Some say that you're one of the other prophets. And I think we can gather from that that public opinion is very fluid. It's all over the map. You say, the polls say that this person is popular and this person is not. Well, people's opinions are going to vary based on their personality, their experience, the kind of information to which they've been subjected. People have a right to their own opinions, that's for sure. But in the final analysis, it's not what is popular that matters. Whom do men say that I am? Jesus says, whom say ye that I am? And there's the question that really matters. What do you say about Jesus? Now, so many folks are constantly looking to see what other people think. They have their finger in the wind and they're trying to gauge which direction public opinion is going. And they say, I don't want to be the oddball. I want to go be like everybody else. There's a fear of being different and not being included and peer pressure is what it's called. And many people today say, I want to be like the rest of the world around me. But Jesus would say to you and to me this morning, not what does the world think about me? And I think you understand that Jesus is not real popular in this world. His name has actually been banned from the public square. But here's the real question. What do you think about Jesus? What do you believe? Have you come to the point that you don't care what other people say about him, but he's dealt with your heart and your life in such a wonderful way that you say, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord or to defend his cause, to maintain the honor of his word and the glory of his cross. My friends, whom say ye that I am? Do you have the courage to stand alone is what I'm asking. You know, there's such a need today to dare to be a Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 says Daniel refused to violate the dietary laws of the Jewish religion and he would not partake of the king's meat. But Daniel stood firmly for his convictions regardless of how the rest of the world reacted. And my beloved, Jesus would say, whom say ye that I am? And I love Peter's great confession. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. I want you to notice Jesus now says, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Verse 17. He said, you've been blessed. Now, I think it's interesting that Peter came up with this correct answer. It's one of the few occasions in the four Gospels that he did come up with a correct answer. You know, Peter's often called the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth because he was so impetuous, so impulsive that he just spouted off whatever popped in his head much of the time, and a lot of times he was incorrect. But on this occasion, he got it right. Peter says, speaking for the group, thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you've been blessed. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now, the word Bar-Jonah simply means son of Jonah. So his dad's name was Jonah, or Jonas. And he's the son of Jonah, that's his surname, but his name was Simon, which meant shifting sand. And I want you to notice what Jesus says, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Now he changes Peter's name on this occasion from Simon, which meant shifting sand, to Peter, which meant a stone, something stable. Jesus changes this man's name to something that indicates the kind of person that Jesus intended to make of him. 
through spiritual growth and the process of practical sanctification, the Lord was going to grow Peter to the point that he was more stable and less ambivalent. But the point that I want first is that Jesus says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, I suggest this teaches us that Christ builds his church with people whose hearts have been transformed by God's grace. And the transformation in Peter, that you know this, Peter, is evidence that you're a recipient of God's blessing. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Interestingly, in a sermon at Yale on this text by Jonathan Edwards, titled A Divine and Supernatural Light. Now, most people know Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But you know, that really was not typical of Edwards, that sermon. But the sermon that was probably the most influential, that had the greatest circulation, and that is often credited as spurring the Great Awakening, is the sermon he preached on this verse, Matthew 16, verse 18, entitled, A Divine and Supernatural Light. And Edward's point is that Peter did not arrive at this opinion that Jesus was the promised and anticipated Messiah and that he was God, a very God, the Son of God. He didn't arrive at this conviction concerning the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ by virtue of his own natural genius. And he didn't arrive at this position by virtue of his own analytical skill or his superior intelligence. Edward says that Peter arrived at this conviction by virtue of a divine and supernatural light. Flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but my Father which is in heaven. He was given a revelation from God. An immediate revelation. You know, Jesus had talked about this doctrine of immediate revelation back in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, when he said, No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Did you know if you know God today, it's because the Lord Jesus Christ has revealed him to your heart. You know, I can talk to somebody about religion and they're just uninterested. But you know, when the Lord gives a revelation, a divine and supernatural light, when he opens the eyes of our understanding, when he does to us what he did to Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it says, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended to the things that were spoken by Paul. You see, my beloved, you understand, don't you, that by nature people are not interested in God. You know that, don't you? By nature, people had rather think about anything, talk about any subject other than the truth of the Word of God. But if you're interested in it today, if you know something about Him, it's first and foremost because He gave you a new heart. He transformed your life by His sovereign grace. It's because He has shown a divine and supernatural light in your soul. Not because you were superior in your intellect or because you're a natural genius, but my beloved, through the transforming and illuminating power of divine grace, you've been brought to believe. Peter believed only because of the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart. And you know that thought is consistent throughout the New Testament, that belief is an evidence of the new birth. In 1 Peter 1.21, it says, who by him do believe in God. How do you believe in God? By him. 
It's not something that's resident in your heart or mind by nature. In 1 John 5, 1, he says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Son of God is born of God. You show me a believer, I'll show you somebody who gives evidence of a work of grace in his heart. So the first important observation that we learn from this passage is that Christ builds his church with people whose hearts he has already changed and transformed by his divine grace. And then I want you to notice the second thought we can extract from this passage of scripture. and It's this, that Christ builds his church with changed people who willingly and publicly confess him before men. Here we have Peter's great confession, thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. And you know, Jesus has talked about in Matthew chapter 10, the importance of confessing him publicly. Matthew 10, 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Yes, my beloved, it takes a public confession, and he deserves that kind of exposure. You say, well, Brother Mike, the world is not friendly to a public confession of Jesus Christ. That's why he goes on to say in Matthew 10, right after those verses I just read, think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's opponents or foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. For he that finds his life shall lose it. You find your life in the world, you're going to lose the blessings that are available to you in the service of Christ. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. You want to find the blessings of his fellowship and his smiles of providence in your life? Then be willing to die to the favor of this world. Yes, my friends, Jesus is a controversial figure. I came not to send peace, but a sword, division. And where Jesus Christ comes into the world, may I say, it polarizes people into two camps, believers and unbelievers. And the church consists of those who are willing to confess and embrace him. That's what he teaches in this passage. Blessed art thou, you've been blessed to believe this, Simon, and the fact that you've now confessed it is the rock on which I build my church. Christ builds his church with people whose hearts he has changed by his powerful grace. And then He builds his church with the people that he's changed who now are willing to publicly confess him. Talking about the importance of confession, listen to this in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. The Apostle Paul says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. That means to publicly acknowledge him. Not to be ashamed of Jesus. Not to be embarrassed by him. Not to be more concerned with what people think than what he thinks. But to publicly confess, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now there is a deliverance, my beloved, a salvation for God's little children in confessing and embracing, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 
For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there is a salvation in confessing and believing. There's a deliverance. A deliverance from a guilty conscience. Deliverance, my friends, from the bondage of a work system of salvation. Deliverance from the fear of eternal punishment. Somebody says, Brother Mike, I've had this great burden on my conscience for a long time that I'm a guilty sinner and I'm afraid that I'm going to split hell wide open. I want to tell you, you need to be delivered, brother. And there's deliverance in the truth of the gospel. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, said the Lord Jesus. Indeed, my beloved, the church is built of people whose hearts have been changed. They're living stones. You know what the building material is in the church? Now, you know, most of our buildings are built with uh, lumber, concrete. But you know, the Lord uses stones. He loves to build not with bricks, but with stones. You ever notice the difference between a stone wall and a brick wall? A brick wall is uniform, right? Each of the bricks is the same size, the same texture, the same color, you know, for the most part. And they're, they're all uniform, consistent. I mean, it's... You've seen one brick, you've seen them all. But stones are different, aren't they? Stones are different shapes, sizes, colors, textures. And you look at a stone wall that's put together and then cemented together with mortar. And there's an art about it. There's a beauty about it. Diversity yet unity. You know, it's different, but it's the same. And that's the way people are. People are more like stones than they are bricks. We're all different, aren't we? We come from different backgrounds and have different temperaments and personalities and different likes and dis dislikes and preferences. But you know, when the Lord builds his church, he takes stones and he makes them alive. 1 Peter 2.6 says that you are living stone and are being built up a spiritual house and a holy temple under the Lord. What the Lord does is he takes this person from this ethnicity and this person from this family lineage and this person from this socioeconomic background and this person with personality A and this one with a personality B and he puts them together and he cements them in the Holy Spirit and he brings them together in a church capacity. And it's an amazing thing, isn't it? I've told Sister Lori on several occasions that one of the great joys in pastoral ministry is just learning the personalities, the variety of personalities in a church full of people. It's really very interesting. But isn't it amazing that we can live together and worship together and love each other and overlook each other for good and not for evil? It is a testimony to the grace of God. You also are lively stones. Now, have you ever seen a rock that was alive? I haven't. Rocks are inanimate objects by nature, but the Lord takes a rock, the old stony rock of your heart by nature, and he tenders it. He gives you a heart of flesh, and he takes you and he puts you into the building. And in his providence, he puts me into the building. And he says, I want you to live together and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the kind of church he builds. He changes lives, and then he expects those people who've come to understand his truth to confess him publicly, to admit it, to acknowledge it, to tell other people that I need the Lord. You say, well, Brother Mike, I'd be embarrassed to admit that I need the Lord. 
I don't want people to think I'm weak. Well, until you come to the point you're willing to acknowledge, I'm poor, I'm poverty stricken, I'm weak, then really the church is not for you. The church is not for the proud Pharisee that says, I've got it all under control, but for the brokenhearted person who's willing to say, I can't do it on my own. I'm a sinner. I need his grace. I need his strength. I need his help. Blessed are the poor in spirit is the first beatitude, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where it starts. So Jesus builds his church with people whose hearts have been transformed by grace, living stones, and then who are willing to make a great confession like Peter did. John 12, 42, he said, Among the chief priests there were many that believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him. They believed, but they didn't confess. But anyway, Christ builds his church with people whose hearts have already been changed who are now willing to publicly confess him. And then once you've confessed him, you need to hold fast to that profession. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. If you have a faithful God that you can trust in, my friends, then you can keep on keeping on and be faithful to him. He's faithful to you, but you be faithful to him. Notice the emphasis on personal confession. Whom do men say? What does the world think about me? But whom do you say? And that's my question to every one of you, my beloved brethren, this morning. What do you confess? What do you believe? And are you willing to admit it and acknowledge it publicly about Jesus? The church is built on that public confession. And then thirdly, we've got to hurry. Christ builds his church on the solid foundation of the person of Jesus as he's proclaimed in the gospel. Verse 18a, I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, Peter's name means rock, but the rock that he mentions in this verse is a different gender. He says, thou art Peter, the word is petros, means a small stone. But upon this petros, it's masculine gender. And what he's saying is, Peter, you're a rock. But upon this bedrock, upon this rock of ages, the rock of Gibraltar, I will build my church. Now, Peter's not the foundation of the church. The church is not built on Peter, contrary to what some of our Christian friends might think. It's not that Peter's been elevated above all the other apostles. No, my friends, the church is not built on Peter. In fact, the church is built on Jesus. I believe what Jesus did here was he said, you're a rock, but upon myself, the rock of ages, I will build my church. I think Jesus pointed to himself. Yes, Peter, you've had a divine and supernatural light. You understand something and God blessed you to understand it and you've confessed it. But Peter, upon the rock of the person of Jesus Christ, the rock that I am the Son of God, upon the rock of this great truth, that's the solid foundation on which the church... Now, we've talked about the building materials. What are the building materials in the house that God builds? Does he use lumber and concrete? No, he uses living stones, cemented together by his divine grace. And what's the foundation? Upon this rock, I'll build my... Now, you know, don't you, that a house or a building needs to sit on a good, solid foundation, right? What happens if you don't dig down deeply? Well, as soon as a wind or a storm comes by, then it'll topple it over, won't it? You need to dig down deeply. 
And the church is built on a solid foundation. It's not Peter, who sometimes got it right, but most of the time got it wrong. And it's not me, and it's not you. Did you know the foundation on which the church is built is Jesus Christ himself? 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And here's the thought. That as the Lord's preachers go forth proclaiming the gospel message, a gospel that says Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it's upon that gospel proclamation concerning the person of Jesus that the church is built. This question, my beloved, who is Jesus, is fundamental to the church's integrity. Who is Jesus Christ? I would ask you today, who is Jesus Christ? You say, well, I think he's a great guru, sort of like Gandhi, or maybe a wise man like Confucius, or a philosopher like Plato or Socrates. No, my friends, I'm telling you, Jesus is God from all eternity past. Come down to this earth, robed in flesh, for the express purpose of saving his people from their sins. And people who say that, and you say, doesn't everybody agree with that, Brother Mike? The fact is, fewer and fewer are willing to acknowledge it today. And the majority of people in our world disagree. They think Jesus is the ultimate enemy. You just go to downtown Raleigh, or go to Washington, D.C., and see how popular he is. He's not allowed on the news networks. Have you ever watched these interviews in which an athlete says, I want to give glory to the Lord and my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? I mean, they quickly change the subject or redirect the interview somehow. Jesus is not popular. But my beloved, if he's the Savior of your soul, may I say it's hard to deny what he's done for you. Who is Jesus? The church is a group of people who are glad to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came to this earth, and I am glad to acknowledge his true identity. You know, that's what Philip said to the eunuch. The eunuch asked the question, what hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the eunuch's confession was, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The identity of Jesus. And when he said that, Philip took him down into the water and baptized. So the church is defined by its commitment to the proclamation of the true gospel. And I want to say, in other words, what I'm trying to teach is that every group that claims to be a church is not necessarily a real church. The church of Scientology is not a true church. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not a true church because they do not affirm that Jesus Christ is God, a very God, manifest in the flesh. The church is built on the foundation of this gospel proclamation. The Australian theologian John Woodhouse said, a gathering of unbelievers who have not been gathered by God to himself, who are not sons of God, and where the word of God is not heard, is not a church. No matter how many impeccable denominational credentials are claimed, nothing of the New Testament doctrine of the church applies to such a gathering. He says it is of no more consequence than a golf club. Indeed, it is of markedly less value due to its hypocrisy. 
Indeed, my friends, many people today say, we're just going to start us a church. Well, does it teach the Word of God and the orthodox Christology of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Then it can't be a true church. And then the final thing I want to say this morning is Christ builds his church in enemy-occupied territory. What are the four points? Christ builds his church with people whose hearts have been changed by grace. That's point number one. Point number two, Christ builds his church with people who are willing to publicly confess him. Point number three, Christ builds his church on the solid foundation of the person of Jesus as he's proclaimed in the gospel. And then number four, Christ builds his church in enemy-occupied territory, verse 18b, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, gates in the scripture are a metaphor for the place in ancient cities where people came together to do political business, to make strategy regarding the community's safety and welfare. You know, in Proverbs 31, 23, the virtuous woman, it says her husband is known in the gates. He has a good reputation among the elders of the city when they sit and meet to discuss civic affairs. We talk about city council meetings, you know, somebody's one of the county commissioners or the city council, but in ancient civilizations, that business would be transacted in the city gates. And you remember when Boaz wanted to redeem Ruth, where did he go? To the gates of the city, right? And they gathered the elders together. So the gates speak of decision-making bodies, making strategy regarding the community's welfare. It's the place of political business, the gates of a city. And he says in this verse that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What he's saying is that the enemies of the church often confer together like the elders would do in the gates, the city fathers would do in the council hall. They confer together. The enemies of the church make their plans and plot together to hinder the church's progress and to stifle her influence. As you read the Bible, Moses was opposed by Pharaoh, remember? David was threatened by Goliath. Daniel was tempted to compromise by Nebuchadnezzar. The infant church was persecuted by the Judaizers and later by the secular Roman government. And the lesson that Jesus would teach us is do not be surprised by conflict, confusion, and tension from this world. Rather, be encouraged that all the powers of hell allied together cannot stop the risen Christ from building his church. And what this is teaching is the perpetuity of the church in theological terms. Now, I would say this morning, the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, is an illustration of Jesus' promise that I've tried to explain this morning. I will build my church. That's what you see him doing in the Acts of the Apostles. He's building his church from small beginnings, and it's growing and increasing. And I want to encourage you this morning, my beloved, by saying that the one thing the world cannot imitate is a church. It may try doesn't matter what kind of club, what kind of society. The world has its groups and it says you pay your dues and you'll be called a member and you join this civic organization or this club. Or I want to tell you the world cannot imitate the genuine love of a church. There is love here that you won't find anywhere else. It's like a family, my friends. Did you know that? It's not that we're just acquaintances in the church and say, you give me your card, I'll give you mine and we'll do business. 
There is family togetherness and charity and love. There's something in our hearts, a tie that binds our hearts together in Christian love. That's something the world cannot imitate. The world cannot imitate the real equality that is found in the church, where males and females, black and white, Jews and Gentiles, no matter what our social differences may be, our economic differences may be, yet everyone is treated as important. The world cannot imitate the true unity of the church, the peace and togetherness that we feel, and the world surely can't imitate the church's mysterious connection to heaven. So that what is happening here is a foretaste of glory divine. The church is a microcosm of what we'll experience over yonder in heaven. Joy unspeakable and full of glory there, we can have a portion of that even right now. Did you know that? Joy that's inexplicable and it's full of glory. When we gather together in the church, it is oftentimes a heavenly place, isn't it? Our gathering together in the church from week to week is in a real sense a dress rehearsal for the great gathering that is to come when the triumphant church will meet never to be dismissed again. And the victory of the church, ultimately speaking, is guaranteed by Christ's victory on the cross already. Therefore, I think we can say a glorious future is planned for the church. May our Lord's comforting words in this precious promise, I will build my church, prove to be a healing balm to every discouraged heart here today. I will build my church. Take